0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another podcast with Navigating the Intentional Life. I am Justin Copeland. And I got to tell you guys, I know I say this all the time. I feel like I'm kind of a broken record, but I'd be lying if I said I'm not excited about the guests that I bring on uh, and get to share with you guys. But this morning, it's a big one. I'm excited to have Alex Cherry on. Uh, He is a man on a mission and and a man that has, has been forged through the fire of life and has had to overcome in ways that um, not enough attention is given to, not enough focus is given to, especially uh, for men and, and uh, in ways that when we start speaking on addiction and health and mental health that uh, we don't put enough focus. And so this podcast this morning, I know that this story is going to resonate and I'm excited to jump into it. I'm going to leave it at that. Alex, good morning, buddy. How are you?
1: Justin, brother, I'm happy to be here, my friend. And you said my name perfectly. Thank you very much.
0: I appreciate you giving me that shout out. It has been a struggle for me, as we spoke about offline. I mean, English is hard, man. Like I might look super intelligent, but I'm not. I'm about as slow <laughs> as I can. So I appreciate that. I'm gonna I'm gonna start calling you Alex Cherie. Jazz is saying up a little bit. But yes. Alex, man, I've been thinking about this podcast since you agreed to it because one thing you probably don't know about me, I haven't been able to dive into this and we're just going to, we're going to hit the, the ball, the, the ground running and balls on the table. Um, you know, addiction for me has been something that's been part of my life, you know, and I know that, that they could, you know, people could uh, kind of quantify, you know, which addictions are worse and, you know, how much harder they are to get over. But in my opinion, from my experience with my own addictions, they're tough, they're demons that you have to overcome. And a lot of the times for us, those addictions are not necessarily even what we're putting in our bodies, it's what's already there. And it's those demons inside that we have to overcome, whether it's trauma, whether you know it's it's that healing that we're not finding. That's the biggest thing. And, and I know with your story, that's something that, that you're sharing with guys, that you're changing and saving lives as is through your own experiences. And I find that to be massively powerful and extremely motivating for my my own personal experience with it. Um, so give us a little backstory, because for my, for my listeners that may not know who they are, or who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself and kind of where you started out.
1: Yeah, um, the first thing I'd mention, just to go off of what you just said there is uh, addiction is more prevalent than people would think. And I think people have this misconception about what an addict is. I know I did for the longest time, you think of a drug addict, or you think of somebody who is an alcohol, alcoholic, you know, you think a picture of them. you already had this predetermined picture of them. And then when that picture doesn't line up with the image that you see of yourself, you're like, well, I'm not that. So it's really easy for people to get stuck in the mud because they, they have this fixed image on what it should be. And of course, a lot of people are highly active when they're addicts. I know I was. They can go to work, they work the nine to five, they do all the responsibilities, but they like to get really messed up. And what does that getting messed up stem from? It stems from running and typically hiding your problems and covering those problems up. But you know, for me, the start of my story, I was a kid growing up, you know, in high school. What a what do my friends and I like to do on the weekends? We like to drink beer and smoke weed. You know, we seen nothing wrong with it. And there really nothing was. Uh, I got in a few bouts with the police growing up just some little things some underage drinking nothing that serious but it wouldn't be until about my 20s where I would start traveling down a different road and the biggest thing was my surroundings and who I was surrounding myself around so when I was a little older 21 22 I wasn't hanging around my same friend group anymore because of course at that time everybody's going off to college or doing their own things and I've Started surrounding myself with different individuals. I was just 21. I was a manager of a bar and restaurant. Um, actually, right down the road from that, my boss owned another bar, and I lived right across the street from it. So instead of hanging around like 21-year-olds, I'm hanging around 30, 40, 50-year-olds who are all drinking all the time. So being in that group, I'm surrounding myself with new people, which is new experiences. And of course, they are doing stuff that I'm not accustomed to, which what I mean by that is they're doing like cocaine, they're doing heroin, they're doing pills, which whatever, I didn't care at the time. Uh, A cook and I that I worked with actually enjoyed going to my house after work and we smoke a blunt every time we work together. That was our thing. We got out of work, we smoke a blunt, we go to the bar and i remember this one day he brought something different and that something different was an oxycodone pill up to this point i had no idea what it was he said this is what i do i like to crush it up i like to smoke it would you like some i was like sure i never tried it before and you know as soon as i tried it i really enjoyed it cuz i realized i had this stigma about what pills were because again i had a misconception about what an addict is so i'm like well i don't know if i want to do this but i did it and i'm like oh wow this is a high just like being drunk or being High off weed, but it's just a little bit different and it's much quicker. Right. So that kind of that started a slippery slope down a path because I found something that was very quick and I enjoyed very much. The feeling was amazing. And uh
0: let me jump in on you real quick. Yeah. Um, so two things come from that. And and I don't want to completely diminish the entire industry, but when I was 16, I got a job at a restaurant. And this is more for the, you know, the parents that are listening and you've got kids that are getting to that age. I mean, my oldest son just turned 15 yesterday, uh, you know, so he's going to start venturing into the workforce. I will say there is a need to be very mindful if you put your child into the restaurant industry, <laughs> because I can tell you from my experience in it, that's where I started to really cut my teeth, so to speak, with alcohol. I was around people doing, doing you know, just smoking weed. I mean, I, I was somebody in high school, I didn't smoke weed. I rarely drank. I mean, I, I hung out with the partiers, but I was one of those people because I was playing sports. Like if I drank two weekends in a row, I felt bad mm. you know, and not even getting drunk. But if I was just out drinking two weekends in a row, I would feel bad. But in that workforce, in the restaurant, you've got people that are 16, like myself up to 30, 35, 40 years old. So you've got an expansive age that's got an expansive life that they're having to deal with it. And they're dealing with it in a way where let's be real, when you're working at a restaurant, you're not making a lot of money, right? You're, you're, especially as an adult, if you've got family and, and, and bills to pay. So they, they were kind of numbing themselves in ways that I had not experienced yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that I want to kind of touch on, because I'll be real honest with you I'm a little ignorant when it comes to, to pills and and drugs like that. Like I've never, I've never done anything other than smoke marijuana. I just had this stigma about pills. I, you know, injecting anything, not, not a thing. Like I don't even take the flu shot. Um, You know, it just was a thing I was afraid of, but drinking. Now that was something I wasn't afraid of. So when you say oxycodone, I literally just watched the the, the show on Hulu, Dope, uh, what's it called? Dope, Dope <Sick. sick.
1: That was really good.
0: Powerful. That was oxy- Was this Oxycontin? Is that the same or is that a different? Uh,
1: different the simil- similarities, different drug though. Uh, same root cause though. They're an opioid, uh, opiate uh, pain medication. So the same, they, they treat the same things, but they're different brands, but s- along the same lines.
0: Gotcha. 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 I appreciate you clearing that up because I I know, I mean, again, I just I've never played with those. I had friends that Mm -hmm. did, you know, because I graduated high school in 2000. Mm -hmm. So I remember when that stuff started kicking in the opiates and, you know, some of my friends had them and they they got into that phase and started pill popping and and mixing it with, you know, alcohol and all these other things. So. So you get to an age where 21, your early 20s are confusing as is, right? I mean, you're really trying to figure out what your next step is, but you've got all this freedom now, maybe even making a little bit of money and you get a guy that's like, here's some oxycodone, right? Let's give this a try. So pick back up there.
1: Yeah, and I must say that you really made me make a realization that i never even thought of because I've been working in the restaurant industry. My very first job was a dishwasher at a restaurant. And I was probably like 15. I worked there from 15 to 18. And that's when I really started smoking weed a lot because like I was smoking weed with the cook there who was like twice my age, but he is cool as hell. And like, that was our jam. You know what I mean? But like, I think about that and it's very prevalent in the restaurant industry that a lot of people, it doesn't matter what you do. They all center around one thing. They get messed up a lot, but 21, 21, you know? So yeah, I'm at that age and I was, introduce this pill and you know I loved it and I introduced it to one of my best friends he went to college at the time so he only came home on the weekend so this turned into our little weekend thing we would do this pill on the weekend however after about two weeks he would leave on Monday but I would keep doing that pill throughout the week so it just kind of started to snowball down the hill because I really enjoyed it and like I was smoking weed or drinking every day at least anyway. So I was like, well, why don't I do this as well? I see no problem with it. Of course, I'm 21, 22, very naive and young. And that just started the very slippery slope where there was a day. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. Cause I was like 22 or 23 and I was going through withdrawal, but I had absolutely no idea. I was at work. I hadn't done the pill for about 14 to 20 hours. And I just felt really sick. I felt like I had the flu. I had a stuffy nose. I had a headache. I was irritated. My body ached. I was like, ah, I must be sick. Maybe if I get this pill, it'll help alleviate some of the problems going on again, not even knowing that I was going through withdrawal. I remember texting my friend who initially introduced me to the pill and he was like, yeah, I can't get that, but I can get something else. Why don't you meet me? I met him. I asked what the something else was. And he's like, well, it's heroin. And then right there, I had the misconception. I was like, I I thought what I was doing in the heroin were two different things when in actuality, they were the same thing, essentially. And I initially said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then of course, in about 20 seconds, I changed my mind because I'm like, I feel really bad. Maybe this will make me feel good, which it did. But then of course that started a slippery slope where now I had a cheaper vice, which was more readily available, which really expedited the growth of what was going on with me, which is the addiction was growing. So that started to started to tumble for the next two or three years out of control. And very quickly, like this takes it, this swept me. Under my feet, because I had no idea what the hell was going on again young dumb naive 21 22 year old who thought he had the world figured out, so I started going down a very dark path there for a while.
0: So you know I as I said like I've never I've never done that and I and I'm lucky because I think maybe there were a few times I had an opportunity to kind of dabble in in these these areas. I mean because once you start partying once you start getting into that that lifestyle, these things start to be introduced. Right. I mean, you know, I I ran into plenty of people that were hanging out that were doing ecstasy. And, you know, there were a few times where I ran into somebody that they're like, oh, that guy's high off heroin, you know, or guys that were cracked out or girls that were cracked out. And you just, you, when you don't, I guess when you don't take that step, there is a misconception. Like, for instance, as you're saying that, saying that heroin is more readily available. I mean, that blows my mind, man, because one, I've never gone out and tried to find it. Mm-hmm. So to think that you could just go and and, of course, i'm in I'm in Houston, so i I'm sure I could find it within ten minutes if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But where were you at? like where give me a like kind of a location of where you're at? And there's a point to that because I just i'm my mind's blown that it, you know, I would never think that someone go, I could more easily find heroin. Than say Oxycodone or something else, you know, because heroin's heroin, like everyone knows, mm-hmm. like killed Kirk Cobain, right? Like <laughs> it's such a thing, right? It killed the 90s, you know. So yeah. where were you at? And and explain a little bit on on the the it just being that available for you at that age, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, the first thing I'd say there's a misconception growing up where you think that there's drugs on every corner and somebody's gonna just come up and try to sell you drugs, which has never happened to me. And very, I've never heard a story where that happened. Like these are things that you can search for. However, if you know the know, which is if you know the people, once you're immersed in that world, you realize just how many people you didn't realize before one have drugs and two sell drugs. I know my mind was continually blown by the people I seen engaging in doing drugs and the people who were selling it, I couldn't believe it because I was never immersed in that world. Once you start making those introductions, you get immersed in it, then your mind may be blown. You're like, wow, there's a lot more people doing this than I originally expected. Now, this is about 2013 to 2016, Mm -hmm. which is the height of the heroin epidemic in America. And this is where all the heroin stories start in rural America. I live in a very rural PA town. And these are the towns that are getting hit the most. And you know, there's a lot of theories. And of course, you watch dope sick. And for the people who didn't, it really centers around these small rural working class communities where they get injured at work, or there's not a lot of activities to do around their town. So what do they do? They like to drink alcohol, they like to smoke weed. And of course, with the advent of these very powerful pills, people were getting hooked on pills. And my story is a very not unique story, because everybody gets addicted to these pills, the pills aren't as readily as available as they once be were before. So what is this very cheap heroin? So let's just say this, I was paying $40 for a pill that would last me a night and I could buy two bags of heroin that would last me maybe a night and a half. So I'm cutting the cost right there and I'm getting double the quantity. And of course, as time went on like 2013, 2014, but by the time we hit 2015 and 2016, that's when they started putting fentanyl in the heroin as well, which made the heroin astronomically stronger And this is the insane part of addiction right here. And people cannot wrap their minds around this if they have not been a drug addict, you know, the people who overdose off drugs and like in my town and my friends and I would hear like, hey, so and so overdosed off this bag. We're like, oh, shit, where do you get that? Where do you get that? We want that. So we're running towards the danger essentially. And why is that? It's because we know that that heroin is very potent. So it's like this crazy insanity loop where you're looking for the heaviest dose that you can find. Of course, I didn't have a death wish. Maybe subconsciously I did because I knew what I was doing was shit. But the fact remains is like we get gravitate towards the hard and gnarly stuff because we know that it's going to elevate us somewhere where we haven't been since the very first time we did heroin. Right. So like rural America, those little towns were the ones just getting absolutely decimated. And I could see it in my own community. And now it's 2022 and heroin's not nearly as big of a problem, but now it's meth. So there's meth everywhere. So it's like every, every town goes through these cycles of what drug is hot, essentially. And tell me if I'm
0: wrong, but from you know, the, the research that I've done or, or the, you know, whether it's documentaries, whether it's things that I've seen and read, it seems these, these drugs have a cycle, right? you know, with, even with, you know, talking about, talking about dope sick, they had to keep upping the ante on that pill to continue to keep people hooked on it. Right. Like, I think when it first came out, it was like 20. And then they were like, no, 40, 60, 80, you know, 120, you know, for one pill let's really, or the dosage, let's really jack it up. And even with heroin, you know, you know, you hear, or even acid, you know, I've got a good friend who his whole life changed after a really bad acid trip um but you hear these stories of like you've got to continue to chase the high right and and once you start getting into this drug they go well we've got to find ways to make it stronger like you're saying adding the fentanyl you know to make it more potent and as you do the drug the more you get deeper into it the higher the high needs to be
1: am i correct in that that yeah yeah the term they call it is chasing a dragon. So you're that's always trying to say it's chasing. Yeah, yeah. You're trying to chase that initial high, that initial feeling of high. But of course it's unattainable again, because you've already cracked that surface and smash your dopamine through the roof by the very first time you did that heroin. So you're never going to replicate that feeling again, unless you quit for a substantial amount of time, which that's never going to happen. So, right. you know.
0: Yeah. And then the other aspect of that too, that I think you hit on that, that was, it's, it's so true and it's fucking scary true is that these people that are walking around that you see every day, you know, you don't know these people are addicts, right? You, I mean, some of them like, yeah, I mean, if they're really hard into it, like you don't know that they're going to work, maybe possibly smacked out of their mind a little bit, you know, and when you, when you really start to dive into it and you start to ask the questions, the number of people that I know that have high end level jobs that are going to to work high, and they're and they're the kind of companies that they're popping drug tests randomly, <laughs> you know, at any time, and they're still going, Hey, I'm doing this, and yeah. in some way chasing their own dragon. The number of people that I know that are fun, and of course, alcohol is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. That was that's been my jam, but you know, the number of people that are functioning addicts is crazy. And to your point, of you know, there's this misconception because you think about it, it looks like the person sitting on the street, you know, scratching their arm, mm-hmm. you know, their eyes are bugged out and they're missing teeth and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, that's just Shawnee, Oklahoma, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not that right. It, and it's scary, man. And so you find yourself in the spot where now you've been introduced to heroin and you know, you're how, how old at this point is around 22, 23 years old. Yeah.
1: Like. I was about 22, 20. Yeah. 22 when I first started doing the pills and then that gravitated towards the heroin. Heroin. And, and I was only doing the pills, my gosh, for 90 days, maybe because that was about it. And then it gravitated towards heroin because the pills, again, were inaccessible.
0: And this is this is where it really, you know, just kind of reading your story and then looking at others. is where it really starts to get dangerous because it's not just the need for the for the for the high. Right. It's it's the need to find the high that then becomes an issue, because it seems like at some point the well dries up. And now you've got to find another spot, and and then on that you're spending what do you say forty dollars for one pill for one night. So if you need it every day, I mean, how many pills would you pop in a day, so to speak? Uh,
1: you know, it's, it's starting out as one, and then from there it's going to two, three. So you know, within a week or two, I'm spending over a hundred bucks a day just to grab some of these. Because of course, as you already said, you know, the tolerance builds up and up and up, and that's something you don't even realize. When I first started doing heroin, it, 2012, 2013. I'm doing forty to hundred dollars a day. You know, fast forward to 2016. At my worst, I'm doing four hundred dollars plus a day. Oh. So, like the the growth of that, and of mm-hmm. course, there's a lot of levers in the middle of that that really heightened why I was doing more drugs. But you get that tolerance, so I was doing enough drugs that a normal person would have overdosed the very first time doing it. And I was literally maintaining, working. Every single day, 12 hour days at a high level working in a bar restaurant managing that like being very talkative and to go back to your point about the misconception about what addicts were and this is what hung me up for so long and put me in this feedback loop of I think everything's all right in my mind because I had the conception in my mind that a heroin addict is somebody one who doesn't have any money doesn't have a job they probably wear pajama pants when it's 80 degrees out like they look like shit you know, but not me because I'm going to work every single day. I have money. I have my own house. I have my own car. Like I have all this shit. So I had all this stuff around me to say like, Hey, my life is not that like, I'm not this person. I'm not a drug addict. Right. Yeah. Because I didn't meet the criteria in my mind, but of course I was tearing my life to the ground. And it's like, it was an us versus them game. So like, I didn't put myself in that category in which expedited what I was doing and basically co-signed the the shitty shit that I was doing.
0: Yeah. So 2013. we're into heroin. Kind of pick back up there, and 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 kind of map out where that starts to take you.
1: Because, uh, like I said, I know it 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 starts to ramp up a bit. Yeah, man. And it does. And of course, like this whole time, I had a girlfriend. Uh, same girlfriend for four and a half years through this whole heroin addiction. She didn't find out till three and a half years in that I was doing heroin. Talk about a little surprise there. Holy but shit. I know. But and that's the thing. Like a majority Talk of my close kids- conception, three years. Three and a half, almost, almost four. She she didn't find out till I overdosed in the bathroom. Like it was a shit show, and we'll get to that. But let's get there. Let's let's yeah. (laughs) But you know, like this thing is, is like I separated those two worlds. Like when I started doing the drugs, of course I only told my one good friend thing about it is when I gravitated towards heroin, he didn't really want that big a part in it. He did dabble in it. Cause like mm. we were guys, like we like to do psychedelics. We like to do mushrooms. We like to do LSD. Like that was our thing. So like, we were all about trying new things. We were going to a lot of music festivals. So like we were immersed in this atmosphere, but the thing about it was, is I was doing it every day. He was doing it as like a weekend warrior type deal. So like he would come do it and I would just keep doing it. So this would expedite. So I kept those two worlds separated and as went time went on you know like i thought everything was fine but about 2015 about 2 years into the addiction is when i basically hit a brick wall i ran out of money and i had no money to support this habit anymore and then that's when i got the bright idea to start stealing from my job to basically pay for my habit cuz at this point i'm doing over 300 dollars a day in heroin so like that's a lot of money and i didn't have it anymore i had a house i had all this stuff i had to pay for and I needed to supplement that money. So then that's when I started stealing from my job. And then that's when things really started to get out of control because now I had a personal bank. Now I didn't have to worry about like, hey, I can only do this much drugs because I only have this much money. It's like now I can steal as much as I want. And I did. And so like I'm drinking every single day. I'm smoking weed every day. I'm doing heroin every day. And like, I'm just filling my body with all this crap and somehow going at a very high level, like energy wise, like I'm going... 18 hours a day, nonstop and getting wasted every single night and doing these drugs. So like, I thought it was just what middle-aged 20 year old men do. They just go wild, you know, and I didn't see, I didn't see the writing on the wall because things would get astronomically worse in the future. You know, some life events would happen that would really expedite how bad my addiction was because like, I was, uh, like mid-level addict. And then after, uh, January of 2016, like, bam, my addiction went through the roof. Cause I had a reason. And the reason for that was, is, uh, you know, my, my family suffered a tragedy in 2016, you know, I was actually in Pittsburgh. I was going to go to Colorado on a skiing trip. And that night I got a call from my girlfriend. She had called me and said, my family's home caught on fire. And it did. So my family's childhood home, childhood home caught on fire. My brother and my stepmother didn't make it out of the house that night it was a crazy shit show. You know what I mean? So like this had happened and I was very close with my stepmother and my brother, not as close to my brother, unfortunately, but this happened. And then my dad and my baby sister get life to Pittsburgh where I was at going to go to the airport. So I stayed down there for a week. And the thing about that was, is I was blasted one that whole week. Mm-hmm. And two after that is when like my heroin addiction went from like 15 bags like 25, 30 bags a day, which that's almost $500 a day in drugs, you know? Cause like I needed that extra layer of drugs to numb all the feelings that I was feeling. So like, I didn't feel anything. I'll tell you what, 2016 was a year I've never been higher in my life in 2016. That whole year, I just basically wiped off the slate. So like these life events happen mm-hmm. and I, and that's when everything just kind of grew exponentially out of control. So like, instead of stealing $200 a day, I'm stealing four or 500. So it's like a very slippery slope because all, all my expectations in like what I thought was right was thrown out the window every day I did something bad, which is steal the money. So like every day I open that door, I'm like, ah, I can just take a little more. It doesn't matter.
0: Dude, and there's, there's so much in that that I don't think that a, a person would really put enough thought into, right? Because as somebody that, that struggled with alcohol, you know, you get these people that go, well, why don't you just stop? like just stop don't don't drink too much don't don't do that it's like well you don't understand the mindset of what happens in that scenario and you know when you introduce this kind of stuff in your body it throws off so much of that chem- chemical balance that you already naturally have so when you introduce that it's changing that but then you introduce something like a massive tragedy like that what people don't understand is the reason it fuels something like that so much higher is that you're not all you're already not handling day-to-day emotions as you normally would. You know, so your your capacity to look at something is now off because you've introduced this into your system. And then you put in this this event that is is absolutely trauma filled, it really just heightens that want and that need to continue to numb. Because at some point, when you start looking at the party, I mean, like some people would say, and maybe you can, <clears throat> hey, I just started partying and, and I enjoyed party, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that got out of hand. And the next thing I know, five years down the pipe, I've got this going on. It wasn't planned, but that's how it happened. But typically when somebody dives into it and you've kind of said, and with the work that you do, you know, there's, there's a need to fill a void, right? There's a need to numb a pain of some kind that they haven't, you know, traversed yet to actually come to terms with. And so <clears throat> I look at that and you go, I mean, if I'm doing the math right, if you're doing $500 a day and it's every day and that's seven days a week, I mean, we're talking about what, $3,500, something like that. Every month for an addiction. Then people again would go, that blows my mind that you would continue because that's a shit ton of money. Like working in a bar, you must have been killing it even before it amped up to be able to pay $200 a day, right? Because there's $1,400 a week. And being, you know, I worked in the restaurant industry as well, but I didn't, I was never a bartender. So,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, I don't know, you know, how much money I could have made, but still that's a, that's a massive amount of money that is mm-hmm. going to one thing. And like I you yeah. tell that everything else that you've got to pay. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> you hit 2016, this, this tragedy happens and you're supposed to travel. That doesn't, I'm assuming that doesn't happen.
1: No, no, it was actually a few hours before we got on the plane. I I got to cancel the whole thing, thankfully.
0: Oh, so after this happens, you kind of I mean, do you stay with family around that time or did you isolate and and kind of dive more into the addiction to pull away from it, if that makes
1: sense? No, I didn't isolate from my family at all. Actually, and a matter of fact, my girlfriend and I moved my two sisters into my our house at the time. Because, well, actually, I had a house. I owned my own house by the bar I worked at. She, my girlfriend owned another house. Her house happened to be nicer than mine. Plus, I moved three of my friends in there, which this is a part of the story I kind of left out. We all kind of grew our addictions together. So I moved when I bought my house in like 2014. I moved three of my friends in there. We all started doing drugs together. And all our addictions started to spiral out of control. The only difference was I had money to support mine because I was stealing it and they didn't. So I kind of pulled the riff cord on my house and I moved in with my girlfriend. We moved my two sisters in there. I didn't stop. I didn't slow down at all. And actually I immersed myself into work even more. So I only took 10 days off of work before I went back after that tragedy had happened, because I just wanted to get back into the groove and, you know, just kind of act normal again. And I think that's a huge problem because I didn't I'd never resolved those problems. I just kept covering them up with more drugs and alcohol. I had my family around, but again, I'm, I'm now two X in my drinking, my smoking, my doing the drugs, because like, I need so much more to cover up all that shit that's going on behind me. So like things just really just got out of control because I was the same person not dealing with what had happened and transpired. So then that's what, and, and of course I would only make it six, uh five more months in 2016 before I got fired because I kept stealing so much more that the, the owner finally figured out like, Hey, these money totals aren't right. Like this can't be right. You know what I mean? And then that's when he did some investigating and he found out what I was doing. So it was a Friday before Memorial day of 2016. I'll never forget it. I just got out of the shower. I'm getting ready to go to work. It's a beautiful day. And I get a call from him. And I was like, Oh, okay. And I answered it. And you know, he, I'll never forget those first words. He said, he's like, have you been stealing fucking money? I was like, Oh shit. And like, I knew, and I knew, I knew the jig was up. Like in, in that one phrase, like my whole world just flashed before my eyes. And like for a split second, I thought about lying, but like, I think inside of me, I knew the jig was up. And then that's when I was just like, yeah, I have been. And he just said, you're fired. And he hung up. And I sat there, I was like, well, shit, <laughs> you know, like, and, I, and I didn't even care about the job. Like, I love that job so much. Like, it's my very first like bartending job. And I fell in love with it. I worked there for four and a half years. It was my longest job I've ever had. And I remember I didn't even give a shit about the job. What I cared about was I'm like, shit, I don't have any money now. Like, I'm screwed. Like, what am I going to do so like, that's when everything started going out of control. And right after I got off that phone call, I had like 18 bags of heroin left. Cause I just got some the night prior. And I remember saying like, well, you know, I might as well just kill myself because like, there's no other option at this point. Like I have no money to do the drugs. Like they're, like the world's over. Right. So I went, I got my drugs. I got my gun. I went to the kitchen table. I put my dogs outside and I remember sitting there and I remember pouring all those bags of heroin out on the kitchen table. And I freaking started snorting them all. And, uh, I just got to the last one. I was 50 shades of blasted. And I remember I got the gun out and I shit you not, the the timing on this was impeccable and I still cannot believe it. Uh, I got a knock on the door and I'm like, who the fuck's knocking on my door? You know what I mean? Like, this is weird. This never happens. Mm -hmm. And I go to the door and it's my coworker, a girl I worked with. Like we were really good friends for four and a half years and she's knocking on my door and I was like, what the hell? And I, Opened it and I asked her what she was doing. Like I had tears all in my eyes because I was crying because I was emotional and and she just talked to me. And I didn't tell her what I was going to do that night. We we talked about it years later, but I was like, wow, this woman really just it, maybe I would have did it, maybe I wouldn't have. But she literally saved my life because I was done with the drugs. I was sitting there crying. I was ready to just end it because I I see no light at the end of the tunnel. And all of, all it was about was money. I had no money. Right.
0: Whew. That's deep, man. So yeah. he knocks on the door and essentially saves your life. And I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious guy and I, you know, I, I'm curious to know if she just what her reasoning was for stopping by your house that day, you know, cause as you're saying, like that doesn't happen. That's not a thing that people necessarily did. And all of a sudden she just shows up, you know, did she ever say to you, you said you talked to her, you know, years later, kind of about it and what was what was potentially going to happen. And thankfully, we, we won't we all know. We know how that story ended. Right. But mm-hmm. did she ever say like, hey, I just needed to I felt like I needed to come by and see you or what was that? What was that story? What was that conversation with her about why she stopped by that day?
1: Yeah, so it actually, it's kind of because I left a part of the story out. So I said it at the start, but there was a time when everybody kind of figured out what was going on, is when I overdosed um, right after the fire happened in January. My girlfriend bought us Cleveland Cavaliers, San Antonio Spurs tickets for the basketball game in uh, for Valentine's Day weekend in 2016, and so that was my present. So we went to the game. When we went to the game, I thought I had enough drugs to make it through that night and the night the next day to get back from Cleveland. It's about a two-hour drive. Well, I did all my drugs that night at the game, so I woke up in the morning. I had no drugs left, and all I had was a bottle of Xanax that my aunt prescribed me after the funerals. Right. So I had this, I had this bottle of Xanax. I'm like, I have no drugs to get home. I don't feel feel like withdrawing. I crushed up like every single Xanax in there because I didn't know jack about Xanax, and I snorted them all. I fell asleep for the whole ride home. When I went home, I met up with my dealer and got some drugs. Well, these particular drugs had carfentanil in there, which if you're not familiar with carfentanil is actually 10 times stronger than fentanyl. So like, this is some really potent stuff. Well, I snorted like four or five bags at a time, what I usually do, but this is like five times the potency. So literally I fell out of my own bathroom. That's when my girlfriend came in. She's like, what the hell is going on? She sees me passed out. You know, she gives me a cold bath. She calls my buddy. Never took me to the hospital, but I was all right. So then that's when the next day, everybody, I had to kind of tell them like, hey, this is what's been going on. So like they had an eye about it. The girl who came and checked on me was best friends with my girlfriend. So like she was in the know of the situation. So when that transpired of Memorial Day weekend, she knew why I got fired because we were all very close at the bar. So the owner told her like, hey, he's been stealing money to feed his drug habit. So I think she put two and two together and just said like, hey, I'm familiar with drug addiction because her past boyfriends had drug addiction. She's like, I know he's probably not in the right mental state. So that's why she drove the 15 miles from the job to come check on me to make sure everything was all right, which again, I'm glad she did because who knows what I would have did in that moment. Maybe I really would have did it because at that moment, like I can vividly see myself, like I have never been like so up and down with my emotions in my life. Like I was on, I would have did anything at that moment because I was essentially a dog backed into a corner. I had no option no option. So like I would have did anything in that moment to alleviate the feelings that I was feeling.
0: For sure. And I mean, that's, that's heavy in a lot of ways. So when the, when your friends and and essentially like what was kind of your family unit, when they found out that this was going on, I I feel like, you know, from my own experiences and, and correct me if I'm wrong or, you know, give yours, but it's like your family members don't at first want to accept that that's reality. Right, that somebody that they care about so much could have this issue, because they, it's not, it's it's almost like they want you to be normal, right? They don't want to say that this is somebody that they know that's struggling with this thing, because again, we go back to the, there's these misconceptions, right? And and you don't look like that, you don't speak like that, you don't operate like that. So what were your what were your friends and family like? The ones that weren't using, and I'm you know I'm obviously not talking about the friends that you were doing it with. But, you know, your girlfriend, her friend, anybody else that knew, what was
1: their kind of mode of operation once they found out? It was uh, really lackadaisical, to say the least, because, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody has their own shit going on in their life. And I told and of course, I didn't fit the mold of what a drug addict looked like. So I think a lot of people brushed it off their shoulders when I said I had this problem that were close to me, which not a lot of people did because I kept it really hush-hush. But, you know, when I said that I would handle it, I think a lot of people believed me and they were not familiar with drug addiction because of course I never seen it before. So they had no idea that that was not going to happen. Right. So it was just like this continual, like, Hey, I got it. I got it. And of course I was working at such a high level and no one ever seen me like that typical drug addict. So no one ever thought twice to be like, Hey, maybe he's not all right. You know what I mean? Until the end there. And even when I got fired from my job, like. You know, I kind of pushed so many people away from me anyway that it didn't really matter what they said anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's <clears throat> again, that's the challenging aspect of it because one, you know when somebody's going through something like that, it's really not until they themselves say, "Yeah, I've got this issue and I mm-hmm. can't control it, that really mm-hmm. anything can be done. and that's not that's not the rule. I mean, there are exceptions where it's like, no, dude, like we've got to get you here or you're not going to live. but mm-hmm they've got to, they've got to reach that threshold of saying like i've got a fucking problem that i can't handle anymore you know i don't have it it's got me and until that moment happens i mean it's a very dire situation you know and that kind of you know that bleeds into you now you've lost a job that in re- reality i think you know kind of from what i'm hearing correct me if i'm wrong but that was kind of the fuel for what you were doing but also it seems like you very much valued that job So in a way, it kind of kept you on this parallel where it's like you valued this, but it was also fueling this. You get what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, good, and it was bad at the same time, and maybe kept you level. But now that's gone. So you get the phone call, the friend shows up, you know, saves your life, um, so to speak. Where does it go from there? Because you got to have that in the back of your mind. Like, I've stole a lot of money. This yeah, now we're getting into. There's
1: going to be some legal repercussions here. Yeah, well, it 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 just kept it just kept going down, brother, and went like that was not even the worst of it. The moment that that May day when I got fired, like life would get astronomically worse before it got any sorts of better. So like right after that happened, I didn't get a job for like six or seven months and my girlfriend at the time her family is actually quite wealthy mine was not mine was like lower middle class her family was like upper middle uh upper high class like they had a lot of money so I was using a lot I, at this point in my girlfriend and I's relationship it really wasn't romantic because like my drug addiction like what we were doing so it turned into almost just a codependency she had money to support my lifestyle of course she kind of enabled me and I don't think she meant to but that's kind of how it went I was a very good manipulator you know know Mm -hmm. so like these things would transpire she would finally have enough of me in about august of that year like i finally got to the tipping point and we kind of broke up you know and like her family started to figure out what happened to me because i got charged in july and then it started to make the papers in about august again she has a very affluential family so they don't want to deal with that jazz so she basically booted me out of that situation so now i'm on my own and i moved back home but of course i was stealing from everybody I would only live at my dad's house when I moved home for two, probably like two months until November because then he kicked me out because I would stole thousands from him, my sisters, anything I could pawn in my house, I was stealing and I was selling. So like they seen what was going on firsthand. And then in December, I remember I basically, I was living on couch to couch for like three weeks because no one else would take me in at that point. So essentially I was just living with dr- different drug addicts. This whole three weeks jumping couch to couch, doing drugs with them, ripping people off. And I remember I literally came to my wits end. I had no one else in my contacts to call or rip off. Nobody wanted anything to do with me because if I was texting them, they already knew that I wanted something. Right. So no one wanted me around. So I had this plan and I I, I knew in my mind I was just manipulating them because I was not going to do this. But I essentially texted my sisters and my dad a goodbye message. And, and I did that because I needed them back in my corner. I'm like, these people want nothing to do with me. So maybe if I say I'm going to kill myself, they'll come back to me, which right. they did, but not in the way I anticipated. So like, I, I sent them that message and I got really pissed off and because <laughs> I knew I was full of shit. They knew what I was doing because I was trying to play them for months. And they did some really sneaky detective work. And within two hours of sending that text message, they found out where I was. So I was at the back door of this place, literally putting my coat on. I heard a knock at the front door. Didn't think anything of it. The people at the house opened the door. Who is it? It's my dad and my two sisters. I don't know how they found me, but they did. And I see them and I made eye contact with them, like, oh shit. And I was trying to put my shoes on. My dad tackled me in this girl's kitchen and he literally just laid on me and wrestled me. He's a bigger guy and he wrestled me and I'm 120 pounds soaking wet at this time. I can't get out. They had called the cops and they basically sent me to the psych ward. And they gave me a choice or like we're either going to 302 you for those messages or you can sign yourself in. I was like, well shit, I'm going to sign myself in. So I signed myself in right before Christmas of 2016 into a psychiatric ward because like my family just had enough of me. They're like we got to get you help and they they had no idea what to do because this is something that they're not familiar with. And of course, they're still mourning the loss of my stepmom and my brother, and now they get to deal with my dumbass freaking 8-month 12 months later doing this shit. So like they put me in the psych ward. So Christmas and new year's of 2016, I spent it in the psychiatric ward, which, you know, it was good, but I mean, I, you know, for a split second, I thought my life was going to change after that. I, I spent like 13 days in there, but like right when I got out, it was right back to the same exact thing. It was just this repeated cycle because I had it in my mind that life was never going to amount to anything for me. I had already burned all my bridges. I might as well burn my whole life to the ground because what's it matter? It's never going to get better.
0: The 13 days in a psych ward, you know, after, after ripping pretty heavy with heroin, that 13 days, did they, were they aware of the addiction and give you those, I don't know what they're called, but give you the pills to kind of help with the withdrawal or did you have to just cold turkey 13 days where your body is like trying to kill itself?
1: Yeah, it was essentially cold turkey. However, though, for like the past three months prior to that, anyway, it was like this cycle of withdrawal anyway, because of course I had no job. I was just ripping people off. So like there'd be like two or three days in a row where I would do drugs and there'd be like two or three days where I didn't have any. So my body was continually going through the cycle of withdrawal because I never continuously had the drugs. So like by the time I got to the psych ward, I was, yeah, the first two or three days sucked. But after that, like my body didn't feel nearly as bad. But of course, the emotions are still scattered and everywhere because you have hijacked your internal reward system so much that your emotions aren't stabilized. So I was going through very high highs and very low lows. So it was very, very interesting. And of course, as soon as I got there, they decided to just slap a bunch of labels on me and give me a handful of pills. You know, they said I had depression, I had PTSD, I had anxiety, and they prescribed medications for all this. So I think they, they had me on six pills a day, you know, for the symptoms I was feeling. Did they alleviate some of the negative feelings I was having? Sure, they probably were. But I mean, I still didn't feel nearly, nearly anywhere close to the goodness that I felt years prior.
0: So in a way there, and I I feel like this is across the board and this is a whole other other rabbit hole, but you know, when I hear these kinds of things, I go, well, you, you've basically seen the check engine light come on. And instead Mm -hmm. of actually diving into the engine to see what's, what, what it's signifying or signaling, you're just unplugging that light. Mm -hmm. with some of these medications that they're they're prescribing to people you know what i'm saying yeah and i don't know if in that situation they knew what you had going on you know because to me it's like all right well so if if we know this young man is 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 being sent here because of this message we know what he's doing with his body we know what he's putting into it the next step from the psych ward would be to rehab you would think right i mean That to me is the logical next step. Maybe it doesn't work that way, but to have that happening and then go, okay, 13 days. Now, were you able to just sign yourself out or did they say you're good to go?
1: Uh, You know, what's funny is actually... I could have left. I actually actually stayed three extra days because actually I made some good friends in there and I decided to hang out with them and for an extra three days. So like I had 10 days, and i are like, oh, you can leave now or you can stay longer. And I'm like,, ah, I'll stay for an extra few days. What the hell. Because like again, I, I was homeless for like a month and a half. I had nowhere to go. and now I'm sleeping in a place. I had three meals a day. I had activities and I had friends that I was around. So like I wanted to stay there a little longer because I'm like, I don't have this outside right now. Like life sucks. So like I stayed a little longer, you know, and you said that point about kind of the check engine light and like I have a lot of problems with the the medical industry right now like I and I put that hat on and I'm not too thrilled about how they kind of approach my problem. But on the other side of that is, is like I really understand because. The medical system is so overloaded and especially the like the psychology department, when you go to a psych ward and stuff like there was two psychiatrists for like 70 plus patients. So with that caseload, you're going in there, you have 30 minutes to literally talk to somebody, figure out their whole life story, figure out what's going on, diagnose them and then go on to the next. So is the system right? No. Do I really blame the doctors for having that caseload and really have to like punch through you know, 20 patients a day, like I can understand that they got to have some urgency in what they're doing. But again, it's not necessarily right, because they should have sent me to rehab. And they tried to send me to rehab my caseworker at the time, like that was an option. She's like, do you want to go to rehab? And I'm like, hell no. So like, at, at that point, the ball was in my court, because I'm not there on a court order. I'm not there on anything. I'm on there technically on my own accord. So after that 10 days is up, they have nothing to say after that. They're like, well, we think you should go here. But Again, the choice is ultimately yours.
0: Yeah, and even with the rehab, you know, a lot of these facilities, I mean, you're kind of there again on your own accord, even if you pay the mm-hmm. thousands upon thousands of dollars to go to some of these big ones, <clears throat> you can sign yourself out. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. again, I'm like you said, unless you're on some kind of court order, and again, I'm not going to pretend like I know about that and how that works, but from my own experiences with people that I know and I love, they're able to get there. And if in a week they're like, hey, I'm not digging this anymore, or I really want to go back. The addictions got me. They leave, mm-hmm. you know. And it, and it is it is a challenging system. I mean, I like the way you put that. Is like, do you blame the doctors? No, you know. Is there is there potentially a better way to do it? Maybe, you know. Perhaps. And I know there's a lot of people out there working really hard to try to fix these these pandemics that we've got in our society, but specifically, you know, for me, it's like looking at the issues that we have with men and how to address these things, because it's three times more likely that a man's going to be an alcoholic, three times more likely, or five times more likely, I believe someone will correct me on my numbers for suicide, right? I mean, there's a lot going on here. So, but to jump back into this, you know, so you leave the psych ward and you're like, bam, right back into real world. I've had this nice little We'll call it a vacation where things are structured. You've got people around you. You've got, like you said, you're getting to eat regularly, you know, like everything's a bit more structured. And then it's like, Hey, welcome back into a world where a
1: lot of people don't
0: trust you right now. Good luck. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's enjoyable. And the funny thing about that is, is like right after I got out the first time, my dad and my ex-girlfriend who kind of booted me out of there, they kind of came to an agreement. My dad's just like, hey, I can't deal with this anymore. My ex-girlfriend and I still talked off and on. So she's like, I'll let him move back in. So I moved back in with my ex-girlfriend. And of course that was a bad situation because I kind of manipulated her into enabling me again. So now I'm siphoning money off of her and my addiction's back to where it was. And I'm doing drugs every day and I'm going through this cycle. And I think it'd be another two months before I check myself back into the psych ward. And that's because literally- I was so close to death. Like I, I, I went through this whole cycle in 2017 where every time after that first time in the psych ward. Every justification I had after that for stealing large amounts of money from people I loved is like, well, I'm going to steal this money from, and it's all right, because I'm just going to get these drugs and I'm going to kill myself anyway. So like, that was a thought process going through my mind. Like, it doesn't matter who cares that I stole $2,000 from my dad. Cause I'm just going to do these drugs and overdose anyway. So like, that's a repeated cycle. And then this happened in April of 2017, where literally I tried to commit suicide. And then my girlfriend wakes me up in the morning. She sees what's going on. Takes me to the ER. I'm barely incoherent. I only came to consciousness when I got to the psych ward. So they sent me back there, signed myself in again, and now I'm back in the same place. And it's like, whoa, here, here I am again. So in, in in I use the psych ward not to get better. I used it as like a hotel. I needed somewhere to stay for another seven days. And that's what I did. I stayed there for another seven days. I get out, repeated the cycle one more time. And I think I lasted, when was the last time I went? November. So I went. The start of 2017, I went in April of 2017. And then November of 2017, I found myself back in the psych ward for the same reason, because I needed to stay in the middle of that. And then the stay in 2017, I had planned on getting out of the psych ward. I had my big shebang and I was going to steal from my mom's boyfriend. And then I was going to go out with a bang right before I could get out. (laughs) My probation officer, because I was on administrative probation before because my charges were pending from stealing that money. I hadn't checked in with them. My dad called them, told them where I was at. They came and picked me up before I got out, ruined those plans and sent me to jail. And thankfully they did, because I think I would have actually committed what I wanted to do. And then that started. And ever since then, I've been clean. But then that's when I went to jail for the crimes I committed by stealing that money for my job that two years ago. So this is November,
0: 2017 is the last time you hit the psych ward. You know, <clears throat> It's interesting that they, I mean, and I, I guess it's a good thing, right? Like they would just continue to take you back in, like, you know, oh hey, dude, good to see you, dude, buddy. Like you in the
1: same room <laughs> every every time I went there, I seen somebody I knew, and what I mean by that, like the that place is. I think a lot of those places are the same, the frequent flyers, like the people in my situation, they have nowhere else to go. And essentially a majority of these people are state funded. I know I was at the time. So essentially everybody's tax dollars from the state pays for these individuals to go to these treatment centers, whether that's a good thing or bad thing, but it happens. So I'm in state insurance and everything because I don't have a job. I'm on you know, the state health insurance and you could just go there, check yourself in and that's it.
0: And they, And in a way that's a good thing, right? Because it gives you... It almost acts as a buffer. I mean, you know, and it, kind of what I'm hearing in your story, those those stays in the facility maybe prolonged you being able to do the big shebang in some ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm hearing, and so I, I would have to think that then there's other people like you said there were people that you knew each time you went in. And of course, when I think about a psych ward, I don't know if you've seen the movie Girl Interrupted. Uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I imagine when you start talking about it, but. You know, it's it's a thing where it's like, thank God they do that, because I'm sure for other people there's similar stories. Because the one thing I have found is that when it comes to whether it's alcohol or drugs, the stories, while they're different, they're kind of not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They tend to follow a same pattern. They tend to follow a yeah. timeline. You know what I mean? And and there's always the big shebang. And it's whether it's whether they they kill themselves whether it's mm-hmm. a purpose or on an accidental overdose or they end up in jail. So with the jail situation, the job that you stole money from, how much
1: money was it that you got charged for? Um, at that point? I think it was like $11,000 It's 11 it ish, you know, and, uh, I actually am good friends with the owner now. Like we, we kept our relationship, you know, years after I got clean, I met up with him. I apologize. And we've been good friends since, cause we had a great relationship prior to that. Like he was a very, very great man. He did a lot for me. And, you know, I always talked to him. I was like, there's no, I was like, it's got to be more than 11,000. Like we were, we were talking a couple months ago at breakfast and we were talking about the situation. I'm like, it's got to be more than 11,000. Like, I can't believe that because literally there was days as five, $600 every day, at least 400. I'm like, there's no effing way because like I was doing this for about six months. So, because when I first started stealing the money is in November of 2015, right before my, my parents' house caught on fire. So like I was stealing like two, $300 a day, but then right after that, the baseline of that money was at least $400. So I'm like, it just blows my mind that I was at less, but again, it was a lot of money and that's not even counting the money I didn't get charged for, which is the money I was stealing from friends, family, which is probably equally as much as that, if not more, because I stole two or three of my dad's check personal checks wrote him out for two, $3,000 did that three or four times, you know, and he never pressed charges on me. I just did it.
0: So you go to jail and that's gotta be, you know, one of those experiences. I mean, it's not, it's not the psych ward now. Like you don't get to check. No, 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 you
1: don't. No smoke breaks. No, no.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're, this is real deal. So, Kind of kind of give us the the rundown as far as leading up into that and then obviously that time spent and you know not for an Oz type of a story, but this is something that becomes a saving grace in your life.
1: Dude, <laughs> jail sucked ass. Like there's nothing fun about jail. Um for the first month, I think I Cheer cried every up.
0: single just in case anybody was like, maybe I'll go to jail. It seems all
1: yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Jail jail time. sucks jail sucks ass it was not a good time um i literally cried every night for like the first month and because i never been in jail before and i was like this is the absolute worst you know they strip you of your dignity Um, I mean, I was just in county jail. It's nothing serious. It's nothing like you see on the movies. Like some guy's going to come there and make you his bitch. Like that's not happening. You know, everybody's basically there for in a rural town. Like everybody either has a DUI or they didn't pay their fines, didn't pay their child support. They're in there for drugs. Like that's one of the options. And like when I went there, um, it sucked and they strip you of your dignity. And I really got a big wake up call and I'm like, shit, I never want to do this again. But you know, it would be, I was in jail for seven months. It'd probably take like two or three months for like, my life, my, my, my mind for me to realize that I wanted to change my life because for those first two or three months, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to go out and start doing drugs and try to kill myself because my life's never going to get better. But like four or five months into that jail stay, I was like, you know what, maybe I can change my life around. So like when I was in jail, probably three months into there, I started working in the kitchen and that was nice because like, I really. It took me back because like all growing up and then right prior to going to jail, like I worked in a restaurant and now I'm working in the kitchen there and I was making $2 a day, but it wasn't even about that. It's about, I was doing something every day. I was keeping occupied. So like I started to gain my confidence back and life was starting to get good. And then I got out of jail and I was court ordered to go to rehab. And like, that's when things really started to change because I wanted to change at that point, but like that point, I'm like, you know what, like, this is going to be really, really hard because now like I have a criminal record and I don't have that confidence I once did I don't have that status in the community I once did and I'm like now I got to rebuild this. So like now I was determined to fix everything in my past and be like all right, this is going to be hard, but I think we can bootstrap this.
0: Yeah. The the jail is this you know is this one of those open kind of platforms where there's you know the beds or did you have cells as far as you know that goes because I do think people tend to think you know this is like Sons of Anarchy kind of jail you know, <laughs> of barbed wire you know like there's fights yeah. every day and look it's not a it's not a it's not a you know Holiday and Express like let's not yeah. uh, search it up but you know it is it is one of those experiences where you know, it's, it's challenging. I think, I think there's a lot to be said in the fact that in that time frame, you could have really beat yourself up. And I'm sure there was plenty of nights where you did. Like you said, you cried quite a bit. Anybody would, you know, I believe. I think, you know, if you've got any kind of conscience, you probably are. Mm-hmm. But you decided in that moment to say, hey, I can either let this define me and essentially break me. And now the rest of my life is just going to be this shit show right? Or I can look at this and go, I'm going to start, because what I heard is I'm going to start to formulate a plan. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start to utilize this as a strength, as opposed to this big mistake that can be seen as a weakness, right? You get to rehab, same thing, you know, like it's not easy. The one point I want to make is when somebody is struggling with an addiction, when somebody has been an addict, there's some shame that goes with that. Right. And, and I, you know, the stuff that you're now looking back at that you did from a clear mind, that's tough, right? That's hard to overcome. And I will think, and I would say that I think that's part of the pattern that's so difficult for people is that shame eats at them again. And it kind of drives them back into that old hat because now they're trying to numb the shame that they realize that they've caused to so many people, but you didn't do that. So you no, I
1: sure wanted to though.
0: Yeah. And, but that's the thing. Again, you looked at it and you went, I have a choice here, right? Which I think so many people miss. And this is not just, you know, for addicts or anything like that. Like there's a choice that you had and it's either I can continue to allow this to drive me or I can say, no, 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 here, there, here's another direction that I could go Mm -hmm. and I can sack up and take after it and see what happens. Or I can bitch out, feel sorry for myself. Cause I know what this story is. I know where this path is going. I've been there, done that shit, have the shirt, right? But fuck, man, you didn't. You said, hey, let's, Alex, let's try this. Yeah. Right. So you get into rehab, go from there as far as where that really starts to change and pick up for you with rehab.
1: Yeah, uh, I had an amazing roommate. His name was Todd. Great guy. Haven't talked to him in quite some time. We did keep contact for a while, but I think he fell off the wagon. Unfortunately, he was in 10 different rehabs before. So he is very fluent in the rehab culture. He knew a lot. He was he was literally he knew so much about recovery but he couldn't apply it to his own life but like i took it what he told me in his teachings and you know he always told me this thing he's like alex you know the cream always rises to the top and what he's talking about that he's like you know the the alpha males in life like they might start down low but they always rise back up to the top He's like, I see who you are as a person. Like you are not that person that you were before. You are somebody who's going to do amazing things. You just need time to shine. And I always think about that because like he's seen something in me that I didn't see in myself at that time, because, you know, originally the, when I said I was going to get clean, like when I was at the end of my jail stay and I went to rehab, like I had in my mind, like, Hey, I'm going to get clean, but I never thought. I never thought one, my life would be at where it's at. Now I was really selling myself short. Cause I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do enough in my life to get by and just be comfortable. That's it. I never thought I could be more because I always thought that criminal record and all the shit, the shame, what you said, cause that's a huge part of it was always going to hold me back. So like, I didn't know what to do there, but I'll tell you what, like the shame part when you said that would really hit home because, you know, the people that I've worked with in the past, like through Narcotics Anonymous and things of that nature, and myself in general, you know, that's the reason people fail. It's because they're on a good path, but as soon as somebody slights them or they feel that shame start to inch back in their life layer, like they throw their hands up, They're like what's the point anyway, because I'm always going to be this person. So it's really hard to overcome that. And it took me a really long time, you know, for probably two years after like being clean, I would still avoid people. Like if I see somebody down an aisle at Walmart, I'd be like, oh shit, I did something to them for a while. And like, I would run from people for a long time because I still had that lingering shame. Like it took a long time to overcome those feelings, but like, you know what? It really doesn't matter. I've said my piece to the people that matter in my life. And like, other than that, I could care less what you think about me. Yeah. And there's
0: an element to this too. You know, we talk about rural America, these small towns. I grew up in a, a small town as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the one thing for people that maybe don't, what you don't understand is, is that mm-hmm. when you grow up in a small town, like you hear about this, but until you've actually lived it and you feel it, you have no idea what it's like when they say everybody knows your business.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When you start to ass out in a small town, mm-hmm. you're going to, everybody's going to know. Mm-hmm. And, and then at that point, what happens is, there's a dividing line in the teams, essentially. Mm-hmm. You've got the people that will always see you as Alex the addict or Justin the Alcoholic. And then you've got the other people that the ones that really matter that go, Hey, this was you at a time, right? And everybody has their shit. And those are the people that you like, man. I want to pay attention to that team. You know, mm-hmm. I need to envelop myself into that team. Right. And so it's 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 very challenging in a smaller town, you know, it's challenging in general, but in a smaller town where everybody mm-hmm. fucking knows your business, everyone knows uh, your name, right? I, same thing, Walmart, yep, nope, not, not going <laughs> to man. Like I'm fucking dead yeah. out. No, thank you, get out of here. Yeah. Almost you isolate, which in itself can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. That said, you know, it's and go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. Right, go ahead. No,
1: and that's the problem as well. Like everybody knows your shit. You know what I mean? And plus, like, I'm I was working in the bar restaurant. I could go into any store. I knew everybody because they all came into this particular bar. Again, small town. And we had a very popular restaurant at the time. So I knew so many people. And then when I got in trouble, they put me on the news. They had a freaking camera cool at my preliminary hearing. So I have a news thing on the internet. They put me on the front page of my paper. Like they blasted me everywhere. I remember I had a job at this time in October of 2016. We were listening to a popular classic rock station. They had me on the 12 o'clock reel. So like me and eight guys are out there listening to my charges on. I'm like, yeah, be freaking kidding me. And of course they already knew about what was going on and they were really supportive. Thankfully, but little did they know I was stealing from them too in the locker rooms, which they found that out later, which that's another whole shit show. But like I was stealing from everybody, but like I was blasted so many places. And I'm like, my name's everywhere and everybody knows about me. So, like, that shame level was at so high that I was just running from so many things because I didn't feel confident in myself because I knew I wasn't living a good life. So, I'm like, these people have a good reason to think I'm a piece of shit because they're not wrong. And I knew that. So, you know, it's just this repeated cycle of going in there, but of course to overcome that. And that's again, a reason so many addicts cha- uh, fail in changing their life because like once they start to see real change in our life, they get some that derails them and they say, what's the point anyway? So like, that's the biggest thing that I try to hammer home to the addicts that I work with in my hometown. It's just like, Hey, you know, like life's going to suck for a while. It's going to take you time to rebuild what you want to rebuild in your life. But I'm going to tell you what it's the most worthwhile cause you can ever do. It's just, you're, you're caring about what people think who you don't even like engage with. Like you just know these people, they're not in your inner circle. Why do you give two shits about what they say? Because at the end of the day, there's probably still people who still curse my name and whatever teach their own. I'm living rent free in your head. But like, I did nothing to you. Like you mean nothing to me. So what's it matter? That's,
0: that's an element to people that it's, it's so tricky for all of us in that, you do, I, I listen to people when they say, I don't give a shit about what anybody thinks. Mm. And I think sometimes when people say that, I, I go, you're the person that cares the most about what Yes, Yes. Like that's kind of like almost an all due, res- with, with all due respect kind of a comment. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you know, the next thing out of their mouth is going to be shit. And, you know, the, the problem that I have with that is, is like, look, it's okay to care about what people think because you want to make other people happy. If you're, if you're worth anything, if you're not narcissistic, you're going to want to be good to other people. The problem is, and especially when when you're an addict or especially if you fuck up, you've got any kind of thing in life. I mean, I'm going to apply this to anything. You know, I went through a divorce in a small town and it was ugly. And there were, again, there were teams that were divided based on how they felt about that situation. It's what you have to get to to believe what you know about yourself. And I say it that way intentionally because there are things that we know about ourselves is whether or not we believe them that can become the challenge or become the thing that gets us through that hard shit that we're facing. Right. It's that belief system. Cause I can know it, but I've got to believe it. And when you've done stuff like having an addiction and again, you know, like I'm not even going to compare what, you know, I, I've done, I've done some shit that I'm not proud of and that I still feel shame over just with alcohol alone. And that carries with me, but I know who I am. And I also now believe who I am, which is back to where you're coming from. You know, you, you do the rehab and that in and of itself, like all this man is a huge accomplishment. Like it's a huge challenge that you're not having to carry. So you get outside of rehab, start, let's, let's start talking about how you said, Hey, and Zach small says this, and I think it's the best thing that I've ever heard him say, but he says, uh, your, your flaws are your features. And to me, that that's really powerful because at this point, that's the mindset that now you're having to take and you start to own, right? Cause you've already hinted, you know, the, the, the drug addicts that you speak to or the recovering addicts that you speak to, this is something that you hit on. So talk about how from rehab, you started to realize, Hey, I've got a bigger calling. Now I've got a bigger responsibility now, and I'm going to step up to that shit and run with it.
1: You know, I think the biggest factor is, is like, man, you know, growing up, I always, uh put myself in a different category from everybody else. I always said that I'm not like this person. I'm different. And I always thought it was pretty narcissistic until I got to rehab. And then I realized I'm like, Hey, I'm not these people. And it's not to say anything bad about anybody else's. I just put myself in a different category, which actually ended up working out for my benefit. Cause when I got out, I said, you know, I never want to be that person again, because the amount of people that I met in rehab, they had some really interesting stories. And a lot of people drove their life way farther in the ground than I did in a really put things into perspective. And it's not a good thing that they did. It's just saying like, hey, Alex, you're not nearly as bad as you thought. You can literally climb back from this because there's people who have a whirlwind more of trouble than you do. And you should be thankful because you still have your family who's kind of by your side. They weren't fully committed to me, but they weren't going to let me rot because they seen that I was making the right steps. So I at least had a family to go back to when I got out. A lot of these people didn't have that. They literally pushed their addiction so far. They pushed that element out of their life that it was never coming back. So I had that. So that really was like my family's support through those 10 months. Now, of course, they weren't thrilled to talk to me every week in jail and rehab, but they talked to me. And with each conversation that we had, it got a little bit better. So that kind of gave me hope. So when I got out, I had that rock and that support to really just push me forward and I was lucky enough to kind of get immersed in a Narcotics Anonymous community around my area, which was vital because then it put me in contact with people who are living the same lifestyle that I wanted to live at the time, which is no drugs or alcohol. And having that support group was immense because we did a lot of things together. We did a lot of things together. And while I may not be happy with a Narcotics Anonymous program now, knowing what I know, I will say that for people who are just getting clean, it could be the best thing for you to immerse yourself with the like-minded individuals who have the same goal and purpose, which is to not do drugs and alcohol, the thing that is going to derail the progress they have in their life. So like getting immersed in that community and doing the steps necessary to get myself better really helped me each day to build the confidence I needed so desperately back. Cause at the end of the day, that's all it was. I had a confidence problem and I needed to build that back. So like it was just putting in the footwork to get that done. Absolutely. There's a point you made that I think is, is big because,
0: It's, it's something that I, that I feel that people need to hear. You said, I always thought I was different or always knew that I was different. When I talk to guys like you, myself included, that's a common theme, man. For those guys, those people, men and women, both, they, they put themselves out there in ways that, that seem, I don't necessarily want to use the word spectacular, but at the same time spectacular, they, they, they have this calling or they're, they're not afraid to put themselves in the arena, so to speak, they all say the same thing. I knew I was different. But they, it's, it's a, the, the challenge in that is like, you know it, but you don't know what it means until you have that moment where you go, oh, that aha, that light bulb moment where you go, okay, that's what this is. That's what this feeling is. Because now I realize that the reason I'm different is because I need to carry this for someone else. And I can step into the arena and not be afraid to share my story, not be afraid to reach out to somebody else because I've carried I've carried the hard mm-hmm. shit and I'm either carrying it differently now or I've been able to put it down. Let me show you the path. Mm-hmm. Every single one of you fuckers say the same thing. <laughs> like, I felt different, man. And it's yeah. like, what does that mean? Am I weird? Am I, you know, like... It's incredible, but there's still that same theme. So that, the, uh, almost said Alcohol Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. So you get into that, that's something that, that you know, again, I kind of have similar feelings with, with Alcohol Anonymous. Like AA, when I got in there, I've been a couple of times, just to a couple of meetings. And, and, and honestly, the few times that I really went was with another friend. I went with him to support him because I'm sitting there going, I don't need this. Ah. And I would look again, the misconceptions, I would look around the room. I'd look at these guys, man. And I'm like, that is not me. Like I showered. Mm-hmm. Today. <laughs> he fucking didn't. Felt, you know, like, no, that's not me. This is, this is way too deep. And you know, they're talking about their chips and their coins and I just didn't get it. And yeah. I'm not gonna lie. The first couple of AA meetings I, I, I went to with them. When I got out of it, I went and got smashed
2: because mm-hmm.
0: all they did was talk about alcohol. Mm -hmm. i'm sitting there going holy shit i didn't want to drink tonight but now i do but now i do now i really do you know and i did i'm not kidding like the first minute you want a coin and i'm like sure (laughs) why not i literally i was literally at the bar that night with the coin going hey look at this look at this look at this just stupid just stupid but it there is, there is, I had issues with that and, and you kind of voice like, Hey, it but it was a good thing as, as much as it was a bad thing for me, but with the Narcotics Anonymous, you kind of, kind of tell us about like one, you kind of already mentioned how it helps within two, where you kind of said, I need to, I got to do something different. You know what I mean? I got to figure out how this, how I, how I handle it, how Alex is going to do this going forward.
1: Yeah. So I started to about Two years into being in Narcotics Anonymous and two years sober, I started just realizing a lot about myself. I started gaining this awareness. I started to really immerse myself in personal development and self-improvement and whether that was books, podcasts, movies or whatever it was like I was filling my spare time with like, how can I get better as a person? And then that's when I started putting a divide between Narcotics Anonymous and I, because just the path that I was going down, like I wasn't interested in saying like, hey, my name is an addict, my name is Alex. Like, I didn't want to identify as an addict. I'm like, I'm not that person anymore. I seen firsthand how many people did not stick with the program, like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, because I went to both. And I I seen how many people were not sticking with the program, like the success rate of the program is abysmal. It's horrible. And no one ever asks why that is. And when you do ask, they say, well, the people aren't ready. It's like, well, no, you know, I think something's broken here. You know, something's not working. Something's not correct. You can't blame the people. It's not the people. It's a product, of course, it's a free product. So that's why. So I started helping people a different way. Instead of going through these steps, I'm like, you know what we need to do is what helped me. When I was in jail, my last 3 months is when I really started getting back into working out. So I was doing push-up sit-up circuits every day with another fellow on the cell block. And then I got I fell in love with working out again. Cause I worked out my whole high school career. I played sports. So like I immersed myself in getting better, eating better, feeling better, doing more things for my body. And I seen the benefits of this and how much better I felt. And I want to do and still listen to other people. So a majority of the people in and a narcotics anonymous and I kind of had that thought because there's a lot of people who believe a lot in that program I didn't and I was very active in voicing my opinion, I actually sat on a community board for narcotics anonymous and in like our district. So like I went to these higher profile NA meetings to try to enact some change, which of course I got shot down and like nobody really wanted to listen to what I had to say. I'm like, well, all right, you know, like I'm done doing this shit because I don't believe in anything you guys are saying, you know, like, I don't think the path that you're going down is going to bring the most sobriety for people. I think there's a different way. So then that's when I kind of broke off. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing and just get to be the best person that I can be. And it's been working out, you know, very well. And for the individuals that I've been helping as well. So like pushing myself in a different direction, I just realized a lot about myself and my own addiction, like sitting there in these meetings with people who, you know, and I hate to say it because like everybody judges people. The only difference is is like, some people just don't say it. Like I I was, I, I was getting really disenfranchised. Like I took really good care of myself in my body because I realized the benefit in that. And when I went to these narcotics anonymous meetings, it always be the same people saying the same damn things. It's the the guy or girl who's sitting there and is on their fourth monster of the day. They smoke a pack and a half of cigarettes a day and all they eat is jack shit. And they're wondering why they have mental health problems and they're not feeling well and they have a low self-worth. And I'm like, there's no wonder why you don't feel good because you literally are feeding your body trash. And you try to tell people that they're like, no, we just need to go and talk about it. I'm like, No. Like the point of talking is done. It's like, screw the talking. The talking is not going to make you feel better. It's going to make you feel better to a point. What you need to do is you need to take care of your body. That's the very first step. Because if you don't take care of your body, the mental health is going to be absolutely trash. And people don't want to realize that. So that's when I'm like, you know what? Why would I go to a program anymore that is going to promote just talking about your feelings and not talk about the bigger issue? The same problem that I had in the psych ward. They didn't ask me, do you exercise? What do you eat? How much sunlight do you get?" Like these questions that really are good, mm-hmm. they're not asking. So I just, I felt really angry about the program because I'm like, this isn't going to work. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to engage in a group that's literally counterproductive to what I want to do in life.
0: Dude, it's a huge thing. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to knock it either because it's certain, they serve their purpose. AA, NA, it serves its purpose in the way that <clears throat> we'll say is, is beneficial for a certain need. The way I see it is this. If I speak to somebody one-on-one, I have an end date in time. There's a stop date <clears throat> for our conversations, right? If I'm working with someone one-on-one, because if if you're talking to me two years from now, or you're continuing to come back to me, or you're continuing to come back to a therapist. And I don't want to say it's it's bad to go to a therapist, even when you feel like things are good. But the point is, you should get to a point where you're self-sustaining. Like if I'm talking to you, if we're working together on something, I want you to get to a point where you don't necessarily require the conversation with me for you to live a healthy, happy, fruitful, productive life. With AA, the thing that really got me was <clears throat> I, kind of, I kind of equate it to modern day, not modern day church, but certain churches where you're just reminded how much of a piece of shit you are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like nothing's ever good enough. You're always going to be lower end. You're never going to rise to the top. You're never going to be that cream that comes to the top, right? You're always the loser at the mm-hmm. end of the day. And you walk out and you kind of feel like shit. Mm-hmm. And with, with AA, like I said, I mean, we kind of joke about it, but all we did was talk about alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, hi, my name my name's Justin. I'm an alcoholic. Why? Why not say I'm not? This no longer fucking controls mm-hmm. me. I don't need this tag. I don't need this title. I don't need to leave here tonight thinking about that. Right? I need to think about that. There's an other side of life where I go, I don't need this friend anymore. Because the best way I can, I've been able to put it to people was, at least with alcohol, was, that's like losing a best friend because that that thing is there for you at any time when mm-hmm. friends are when family's not good times bad times in between times and when you get rid of that when you're in the the throes the, the the beginning process of it, it is it's like a loss in some ways but i got to that point and and it sounds it's obviously you have as well is where you go i want to figure out how to okay i've, I've declared hey, I had this issue. It's obvious everyone knows I'm accepting it. I'm not in denial now. I get it, it was a problem. However, this does not, this is not the story of my life, right? This does not define me and who I'm gonna be for the next 40 years of my life. So what's the next step to continue to move away from it? So tell me where, you know, like that mentality, trying to fight within a doesn't work out, You basically said, fuck you guys, you know, I'm out. What was the next step? Where did you start to get where you're like, Hey, this is what I need to do.
1: Um, I still don't know what the hell to do. Um, but, but what I, but what I do know is, is like, right after I left NA, like I just kept doing what I was doing and what I was doing was just trying to get better in my own life. Um, so I was continually continually taking care of my body. I was exercising every day. I was eating right. I was pushing myself forward. At the time I had a job in a factory. I was trying to kind of fight my way up a corporate ladder. So like I went from literally getting hired on as just a general labor. And within a year I became a second shift supervisor just from putting the work every single day, because through those three years of building myself back up through recovery, like each day I built my confidence back up. So each day, like I had a little bit more. So like by the time three years came back, I was at the confidence level. I was prior to getting fired from my job, which was pretty high. I got that second shift supervisor's job, a very good job. I was making very good money. And I was just like, that's when the light bulb moment kicked on. It's like, who cares about your criminal record, Alex? Like no one cares. All that matters at the end of the day is how you conduct yourself. That's what people matter. So like, if I can get like, People, and I always say this, like whatever job I was applying to, I'm like, I don't care what my criminal record is. Just give me a shot to get in front of you with an interview and you will see that I'm not the person that you think I am. And every time that it worked. So like my confidence is at a different level. And I'm like, I need to do something else. I like My life is more than literally punching a clock for this factory who doesn't give two shits about me. So like, it was just this continual buildup of confidence. And it's like, all right, I can literally do whatever I want now.
0: You know, that's where it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Yes. What we kind of talked about is that you, you can know you're a certain thing, but you have to believe it, right? And that's what and you're saying with that confidence. You get back to that point where you start to believe again, that confidence starts to build back up. And now you remember why you are who you are, right? Regardless of, you know, like you said, the criminal record, all that, like screw all that, to hell with all that. Again, I believe my confidence is where I, that I can continue to forward. So as we start to get to kind of closing this, you know, cause this is, you know, I want to, I want to bring you back on again, uh, multiple times, but tell, tell the people, <clears throat> you know, you, the factory job was somebody said, this is not what defines me. It's not going to control me. What are you doing now with how you're, you know, you're networking with people and how you're reaching out to people and, and where you, you really found your
1: groove as far as this calling that you've had and this mission that you've been on? Yeah, so I was, you know, I was rolling around Twitter here for like the past two years, but initially I got really into crypto, so I was rolling around as a crypto anon for a while, just shit posting everywhere, kind of like this toxic mentality with Twitter, right. and I I I came across this profile one day. His name was Zach Homel. I don't know if you're familiar with him or follow him. But I started I seen this video we posted in like April of 2020, like it started the lockdown and I was like, oh, wow. And I started to see the people he was following and I started to surf down there. I'm like, wow, there's people that are running businesses off of Twitter like that kind of blew my mind. And then that's when I started to immerse myself in like that side of Twitter. And I realized that people were making like. A lot of money helping people online. And I seen all these new possibilities. So like I went through down the line and all I had in my mind at that point was like, well, I want to get rich, like let's get rich. So I had like eight things that I was going to do. I was going to become a software developer. I started drop shipping. I started trying to make ads online. I tried to make a marketing agency. like, I went down all these business ideas to figure out what was going to be my get rich quick scheme. Mm-hmm. But I came on coaching because I was just like, you know, I don't know what to do. And I don't know what my strengths are, but I knew one thing, like I had this deep knowledge and skill base and addictions because one, I was an addict myself two, I helped people get clean. So like I was traveling down this road. I'm like, well, why don't I help people do this? Because the problem is absolutely astronomical. Like it's huge. My sister and I had a conversation. My sister actually has her master's degree in psychology. She's a very intelligent woman. And like, we have great in-depth conversations at this time. I was obsessed with Jordan Peterson. His 12 rules for life book just came out. Like I loved it. I was watching all his talks and like, I was really immersed in like his message and his message was he did. He always says it's not geared towards men, but men are receptive to it because they need it. And I seen that problem as well. You like quoted those statistics earlier in the podcast here about men being three times more likely to commit suicide. They're twice as likely to work outside in dangerous conditions. Like they're more likely to not talk about their feelings. And I knew that in my own life. So I kind of set it out. I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to change the world in a sense. And how I want to do that is I want to help men. And why is that? Because men are what I see kind of left behind. We're told to suck it up. We're told to just move on. You know, once you can find that, they say to talk about your feelings, but you know, most men don't want to talk about their feelings to women because they don't want to be looked down as less. And I can understand that. So I found the real yeah. power in men helping men. So I'm like, this is what I need to do. Like, this is what I feel. Maybe this isn't what I'm going to do the rest of my life. But right now, this point in my life, like I feel like this is where I'm needed to kind of like give men that confidence and be like, all right, you're at your low point in life. And guess what? I've been there too. It's going to be okay. Because that's the biggest problem I had with rehab and the psych center. Like you are getting treated by these people who have never gone what you've gone through. So when rehab, for instance, I'm in a 90 day, long-term rehab. We had two counselors on our floor, both two young girls, about 24. They just graduated from college. All they have and all they know about addiction is what they read out of textbooks. They have a degree in social work, which is great, good for them. But the thing about it is, is I didn't give two shits about the message they had to say to me. You know why? Because they had no skin in the game. Had they been at had they been addicts, I'd be like, yes, I'm gonna listen to you. But Shannon, you're not a fucking addict. You read it in a book. I don't give a shit. You have no idea what I'm talking about. So, like, I'm like, if I I respect the people who are trying to help me who have gone through what I've gone through. So I'm like, there's no better place to put my life experience because. I don't want that three years that I caused complete shit and chaos to go for nothing. Like it was not for nothing. It happened for a reason. Now it's time to use that reason and help other men and be like, Hey guys, your life shit. So was mine. Here's my resume to tell you it was shit. Mm -hmm. And now let's build this shit back up. Cause look where I'm at in life today. Like I am a hundred times better than I was before I got fired from my job like a hundred times better of a person. And had that not happened, me becoming a drug addict and still working at that place, I would still most likely be at that bar and I would be a horrible person. Cause like, all I would care about is the things that don't matter in life. Like right. that experience of my life humbled me and brought me to the point I am now. Like, I'm not a huge religious person, but like, I do fall in the realm of religion just for the sense of like, everything happens for a reason. And I think about that, it brings me comfort because I'm like, you know what? I think it does because all the skills I've learned up to this point in my life and all the negative things that have happened made me who I am today. And this is how I can apply them to my life. You know, I think that's a great spot to kind of
0: <clears throat> close this one out. But one of the things I'll say to, to your point, and this has been a topic of big conversation for me as of late, but when it comes to religion, like I, I push all that aside. I don't care who you are as far as what you belief patterns are. Believe, don't believe, that's fine. But every day, I think somebody, I think everybody should understand we practice faith in one way or another. Mm -hmm. In one way or another, it doesn't have to be to some, you know, figurative God in the sky, right? When I started a podcast, when you work with the guys that you work with, when you do a podcast, when you write, whatever it is that you do, you're putting faith into that work that you're doing is going to accomplish X, Y, Z, right? And you believe that through that work, that's going to happen. The, the work that you're doing now with, with this telling your story and providing that story is, is so big, man. And, I, and I'm so thankful. I appreciate you, honestly, in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, but one, for sitting down with me this morning and taking the time out of your day <clears throat> to share this, because I fully believe that this is massively needed. I'm right there with you in believing that men have a problem right now. And it is that because of how we were brought up, you know, like you don't cry, you don't show your feelings, you suck it up and you go, right? I get that. We need to be strong. That's not saying that you don't need to be strong, but it needs to be strong mentally, physically, and spiritually in some aspect. But there's strength in identifying your weaknesses, right? Like when I go and train a a session, if I'm coaching a team, if we've got some weaknesses, yeah, I'm going to spend a lot more time on the strengths, but I've still got to address the weaknesses, that's no different in our everyday lives as men. You know, and, and I think what you're doing is, is providing an opportunity for someone else to believe, for somebody else to have faith that they themselves can be in the shittiest gutter of their life and still make it out. And not just make it out and have a job, you know, working their, their asses off the rest of their life and just getting by and just surviving because this one thing defined their entire existence. No, no. no. You're saying not only can you get out of it, but you can thrive. You don't have to just survive. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> what I want to do, um, tell people where they can find you. Now, this is all going to be listed. I'm going to put this out. Uh, we're going to add some links as well. Uh, I'll touch base with you as far as what links we can add, where people can go, if they have addictions, if they're struggling, if family members know they have friends or family members that are struggling, they can click on these links. They can get information. But tell them where they can find you. Um, kind of your mission and any of that pertinent information so if somebody's listening right now they can say i need to reach out to alex and they can find you
1: yeah i'm most active on twitter you can find me at at alex w cherry um that's basically my main platform right there i also have a podcast the reject mediocrity podcast and i do a lot of the things that you do i love to have interesting individuals my whole premise is and this comes down to my ethos to reject mediocrity that is a phrase that I go back to, like when times get tough, mm-hmm. like when you don't want to do that shit, like what do I say? I say reject mediocrity. So I made it a podcast. I like to talk to individuals who, one, are getting the most out of their life. Maybe they've been through some shit or maybe they're just at the top of their craft. Like I love to hear the stories of what make pe- what makes very successful people tick. And I do that so I can steal their methods and make them into my yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. like I, I just want that because cool. I, want to be the be- I want to be the absolute best person that I can be. So I talk on there. So there's that. And those are the two platforms I'm most active on. And that's where I'm always at. Awesome, man. Well, like I said, you know, I'm going
0: to make sure that everything is kind of detailed out um, when, we, when we set this podcast out so that <clears throat> anybody and everybody can, can find it. And we know the way that I end this pod, the podcast is this. If you're listening to this, you have now and you're, you're at this point in the podcast, you have a call to action now. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to subscribe. I'm not going to ask you to share. You know, a lot of people do, in my opinion, it's something bigger than that. If you've listened to this and you're still with me right now and you know, yourself have a struggle or, you know, yourself is, is an addict and somehow you've stumbled across this podcast. Don't look at that as coincidence, right? Take it as a meaning, take it as a calling. This is your call to action to reach out, whether it's to Alex, whether it's to myself, we're giving you that information that you need. And we may not have the answers, but we can provide you a direction. And if nothing else, you're not alone. If you've got a friend, if you've got a family member that you know, they need that path, they need that guidance. This is your call to action to get them here. Get them that support that they desperately need so that they can share a story like Alex is today, right? That's our call to action with navigating the intentional life. Be intentional in your efforts, be intentional in your today right now because you never know what tomorrow is gonna bring. That said, if you feel it in your heart to subscribe and to share this, thank you, because then we can continue to share these stories. That said, one last time, Alex, thank you so much. I appreciate you for taking the time this morning. My name is Justin Copeland. I am the host of Navigating the Intentional Life podcast. You all stay safe, and until next time.